Well, we have been, I mean, we've been dealing with some tough subjects. Uh, I think there's not anybody here who didn't catch that. And uh, the last three weeks in Sermon on the Mount, I, I think a lot of you have gone, man, those are heavy. And, and, and it's because it's so practical and it fits life so much. And, and then what we're trying to say, if you haven't caught it, is that all of us at times, if we live our lives the way we should, we get honest about our weaknesses. We get honest about things in our life that maybe aren't quite right. And I know, I know that there are many of you today who have a syndrome that, that's very real and a lot of people don't understand it. And we want to be a church that is understanding. And so we've decided that we have, have a video we want our whole church to see because some of you suffer from ELS. And, and we want to really be able to be sensitive and helpful in that. So watch this. You wouldn't leave early on a date. You wouldn't leave early from the party. You wouldn't leave early during a proposal. You wouldn't leave early while pumping gas. You wouldn't leave early at your own wedding. You wouldn't leave early when your wife is in labor. Then later come back to apologize and leave early again. Leaving early from church is bad. It's called ELS. It's an actual real condition. That's a fact. Just ask this doctor. Hi, I'm a doctor. See? Early leaving syndrome. Your leaving might distract someone from salvation. But I'm sure you can live with that. What if God left early on you? Well, if you're brand new to us, what we're trying to say is this, is that the most important time in our service is the invitation time. And we hit the invitation. We're going to ask that you literally do not leave, that you stay right where you're at, unless you're coming forward uh, uh, to make a decision for Christ, that you stay in your seat so you don't distract from that time that God wants to use. By the way, I know some of you are going, well, I should go set up for something. No, you don't need to do that. Uh, and if you need to slip out, you can slip out now or you can slip out during communion. But we really need everybody to stay in their seat during that time. And I want to ask you to do this. Please don't leave until the last person comes forward. Because I don't know about you. Every single person matters to God. And we need to be excited for them in that moment. So, so we're going to ask that we all, all really watch for that and be sensitive to that and let God use that time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this church family and for God. I thank you for your word. Jesus, you care about us so much. And I pray we're going to want to live with you and for you and live the lives we're supposed to be living, being the people we should be. And I pray these kingdom truths will become incredibly powerful in our life today. Today, let us understand how important it is that we grab hold of the beauty of truth and what it can mean in our relationship with you and others so we can be connected to you living intimately with you and, and living in an amazingly healthy relationship with others. Help us to see that in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we're dealing, like I said, with truths we want you to grab hold of. And, and I think all the times all over this campus, we're trying to get people to understand that, that when you live your life, the way God wants you to, it literally becomes incredible. Uh, uh, for instance, in Sunday school, we're trying to get the, under, the students to understand how important it is to, to, to focus on the right things and not to veer or turn away from it. 
And uh, you probably heard, you know, uh, that Jesus said that, that he who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And, and in trying to get Sunday school students to understand that, uh, a teacher was sharing about Lot and how Lot and his family were told to leave Sodom and Gomorrah and not look back. And the teacher said, and you know what happened? When Lot's wife looked back, she turned into a pillar of salt. And one little boy raised his hand and goes, wait, 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 wait. She goes, my mom was driving the other day and she looked back and she turned into a telephone pole. (laughs) And so we want to live our lives right. I think everybody agrees with the right focus. And then here's the thing. We want to end well. You know, unless the Lord comes back, we're all going to die. And, And I don't know if you've thought about that, but... But, you know, we're all going to die one day. And every now and then, you and I, we probably all think about how we're going to want to die or how we don't want to die. And I've decided I, I want to die like my grandfather did, peacefully in his sleep. Not like the other passengers in the car kicking and screaming. <laughs> okay, for three weeks I've been waiting to use it and it wouldn't fit. Um, it doesn't fit today. I just had to use it. Okay. Um, Jesus, though, is in the midst of telling us what really does matter in life. And his great desire is that you and I would live the blessed life, the blessed life. It's the mercurios is the Greek word. It's a life that is literally one of supreme happiness. That's what the word actually means. Even more than blessed, to be supremely happy. God, being a father who loves you, wants you and I to be happy people. And so he calls for eight attitudes to be in us that we call the beatitudes. that, That if we would predicate our life on them. Hold on to them and live by them. He says you would be blessed. And, and it begins by being poor in spirit, realizing you have a need for God. And then it goes into the willingness to be honest about when we failed and, and let God comfort us. And, and then meek means to be trained by him. And all these start on the inside and come flowing outwardly. And then it should become very practical in our life. So the Lord says that, that he wants us to live our life shining out for him and being salt and light. And, and living our lives guided by his word. Because Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away before the smallest letter or stroke pass away from this. And in living our life according to his word, then the Lord says this. I don't want you to be an angry or insulting or demeaning type person. I want you to cast that away from you. Why? Because you're never blessed when you do that. As a matter of fact, angry people, people who insult, people who are demeaning to others end up being very lonely and they create loneliness. And in Genesis 2.18, we see the opposite of the blessing of God, which is a connected, loving relationship. We see the aloneness. It says, God says it's not good for man to be alone. When we're living the blessed life, we live it in connection and healthy relationships. And anger hurts and demeans and ruins that. And God doesn't want that taken away. Then the Lord says, I also don't want you to be adulterous or lustful. Because that actually creates loneliness too. And it harms you and it harms relationships. And so Jesus is saying, don't be angry, but instead be be a peacemaker. And he's saying, don't be adulterous and lustful. Instead, be pure in heart. And that's where you find joy. And then we saw last week, he says, and don't give up on relationships. So he says, don't divorce. Don't, Don't ruin families. Don't force loneliness on other people. Because so many children today actually have a difficult time forming solid relationships because of not listening to God's words. Couples erupt and one gets hurt maybe more than the other, but both end up experiencing wounds and pain. And so he said, I don't don't want that for you. Now we get into something else, he says. He goes, and and to make sure you're none of those things, 
I want you to be a person of integrity. I want you to be a person who's true to your word, who keeps your promises. And notice what he says here in Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, and no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. Now, we're going to talk about the fact that he was actually referring to something in that day that was a practice that was not to be uh, uh, kept in motion, that he wanted put away. But there's an overarching principle that comes out of this says, be a person of integrity. Be somebody that when you say yes, it's something that can be counted on. When you say no, well, we know you mean it. The reality is, though, is you're a person of your word. And, and here's the thing you and I need to understand. This is huge. This is huge to living an incredible life, not only with other people, but with God also. You see, God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We can't be people of falsehood and relate to Jesus who's truth. Standing before Pontius Pilate, he was resoundingly the truth to the point that Pilate even said, what is truth? Trying to grab hold. Something's going on here. And we need to be people who are truthful. Jesus, when he was talking to a woman who was hurting and in pain, we call her the woman at the well. We talked about her last week. She had been hurt by people. She had been turned on by people. She was lonely and she thirsted for something more. And Jesus, wanting her to be able to get it, said these words. In John 4, 24, he says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, we've got to be people of integrity. We've got to be people who want to live our lives openly and honestly. And when that doesn't happen, pain comes in incredible ways. Uh, If you're a parent, I think you'd agree with this. You could probably deal with most anything with your children except them lying to you. If you have a child who lies to you, a, a, a teenager who lies to you, you're like beside yourself. But what do I do with this? How do I help? How do I stop them? They're ruining themselves. I don't know how. And it it takes away trust. If you're a child whose parents lie to you, you feel so insecure. But here's the thing. You begin to feel incredibly distant. It it creates a chasm between you. And and, and man, it happens to your kids. It happens with kids to to parents. And it happens between married couples. And it happens between friends. I, uh, years ago, was sitting in my office and this couple was in front of me. And they had a lot of things to work through. And it was the second session and we're trying to dig into what's going on. And then she looks over and starts to cry. And she said, you know what? I can't, I can't get across to you. There's nothing that hurts more than the fact you lied. She goes, then she said these words. She goes, you lied to me. And she started crying. And those aren't just words. Those, that, that, that is the experience of a true wound and pain that goes to the depths of our being. When somebody lies to you and, and you look and think, okay, how can I ever build trust again? It's not going to be easy to do. And so Jesus is warning us, don't, don't ever get there. Make sure you're somebody who's a person of truth. Now, the problem is we all lie. 
As a matter of fact, in Zechariah chapter 5, uh, the, there's a scroll, a huge flying scroll. And by the way, in Zechariah 5, that's the same scroll that will appear in Revelations, where Jesus will hold it. And, and it's God's will for the earth. But we're told what's in that scroll in Zechariah chapter 5. And in Zechariah 5, it says that on one side of it is a conviction that every single person has stolen it sometime in their life. And on the other side is everybody's lied. And so here's what we need to understand. God said, I'm going to judge the world. I'm going to open up a scroll and and judge the world based on the fact people lie and steal. And we are a country, a nation that lies. Um, Time magazine did a whole cover story on this a while back. And on the cover, it said this. It says, we all lie honest. Huge, big print. It was such a great cover. As a matter of fact, are you ready for this? According to the book, The Day America Told the Truth, 91% of people say they lie regularly. 91% of people say they lie regularly. Are you ready for this? 97% say that they don't think they're liars. How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? You know what? But I don't want to be called a liar. Why? Because it's, that's huge. When someone said you're a liar, we usually react because it is a big deal. It's an issue of character. How about this? 20% of the people surveyed said they cannot go a day without lying. 32% say they've been lied to by a pastor or a clergyman. Now, I think that's really sad. But, but here's where I want to tell you. Man, my profession being a pastor has really taken some, some hits lately. Uh, we, for years, were in the top three of the most honored and trusted professions. The Gallup uh, uh, group survey after survey showed that we were either one, two or three in professions of people you could trust. But by the way, right now we're at number eight. I mean, we've fallen all the way down to eight because people who are in my position have not been people of integrity and we've lost trust and faith. And I would think that you would agree it shouldn't be that way. As a matter of fact, it might intrigue you to know, what do you think the most trusted profession is in all the United States? Nurses. Nurses, 83% of people say they can trust nurses. Uh, It's followed by pharmacists, 66% of people say they can trust pharmacists. Then doctors, then the police, 63% of the people say they can trust a policeman. Then it's followed by engineers, then by dentists. And then number seven on the list is college professors. And then number eight are clergy. And by the way, only 50% of the people in the United States say they can trust a priest or a pastor. Now, I got to tell you this because I get a lot of joy from it. I'm not happy about where we are on the list, but I'm really, really excited to tell you that psychologists actually don't make the top 10. (laughs) Dr. David Smith is here somewhere. My buddy, I want to tell you, dude, you're not trusted. I've golfed with him. Don't trust him. But uh, 33% of the people in the country say they can trust a psychiatrist or psychologist. How about this? Stockbrokers and congressmen tied. Only 9% of the people uh, trust a stockbroker or a congressman. By the way, that number is so low, it's probably their family. Um, (laughs) Little trivia question. Who lies more, liberals or conservatives? You ready? According to the survey, liberals lie more. But liberals say the conservatives lied on the survey. Um, (laughs) Who lies more, men or women? I'm not going to answer. I... uh, I don't care what the survey said. I get in trouble no matter which way I go. So, uh, but here's the thing. Everybody lies. 
And God calls for us to be people of truth. Why? Because it creates a disconnectedness. It keeps us from the love of God in a very incredibly dynamic and intimate relationship with God. It creates us a loneliness. It creates us far away from what matters. It hurts relationships. I think there's not a person in here who would, who would say they, they like being lied to. And everybody says, I hate it when you lie to me. And, and I don't want to be around someone who lies. And I don't want to be that kind of person. And yet we struggle with it. Now, Jesus is addressing a practice in that day that was incredibly, incredibly uh, uh, used constantly. Uh, it was something that they did within the Judean community. Uh, and the reason was they would do it so they could rip off people who were foreigners. And they had all these ways of saying, well, I make a promise by the temple. I swear by the temple, this is true. And then they wouldn't have to keep it. Why? Because they had a a teaching that if you swear by the temple, you're not bound to what you swear to. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you're bound. If you swear uh, uh, by the earth, uh, I swear by earth, the the earth itself, that this is then you weren't bound to keep it. But if you swear by heaven, then you had to keep it. And Jesus said, what are you doing? And what happens is people who didn't know that culture would come in and think they were making a business deal that they could count on. And then the person was turning around and and betraying the deal. And Jesus said, I got to tell you, that just makes you a person who lacks integrity. It makes you a liar. Kind of like little kids, you know, Oh, I crossed my fingers when I said that. Well, it doesn't matter. Your word's your word. And so that's what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 23, 16 to 22. He says this, woe to you. Blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple that it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold of the temple or the, or excuse me, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. And he says, don't you understand? You can't do this. You can't be somebody who lacks integrity. Again, it reflects our relationship with God in a huge way. I didn't put this in your notes, so you might want to jot this down. But Psalm chapter 15, it says this. Oh, Lord, who may abide in your tent? Do you know what the tent is? It was the tent of the meeting where Moses would go and be face to face with God. God offers any one of us, anybody here. He said, I love you and I care about you. And I want a relationship that's very real and face to face. It's intimate like a friend. Who gets a relationship like that? And then it says, who may abide on your holy hill? In other words, who gets to go to heaven? And it says these words, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Did you catch how how three times it talks about being righteous, being a person of integrity and speaking truth? It says that's what we're going to have to have to have a relationship with God. And by the way, an intimate relationship with God that's incredible, that's amazing, where he's moving and stirring. And if some people say, well, I pray to God and I don't experience him. Well, I tell you, one of the things you need to look at is how honest you are. How truthful you are, how, how, how your integrity checks. It goes on to say this in verse 3. He does not slander with his tongue, nor do evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against a friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now catch this next line. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. God said, if you want a real relationship with me, when you make a promise 
and you realize that that promise now is bringing hurt and pain in your life, you don't opt out. When you promise uh, an organization, an institution, a person, and you pledge, you swear to it, he says, and now you realize, uh uh-oh, this is going to make me unhappy. This is going to create hurt in my life. He said, if you're the kind of person you are, your word is more important than your pleasure. And you keep it. You keep it. And he says, that's the kind of person I'll have a relationship with. One who doesn't try to get out of things just because now I'm sorry I said yes. Because your yes should be yes and your no, no. Now, by the way, Jesus in saying this is not saying there's never a time to make a vow. He said it's better if you don't. And you shouldn't use extreme vows just to try to get people to believe you. You should be such a person in integrity, it's not needed. But but grab this. In Deuteronomy 6.13, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. That's repeated in Deuteronomy 10.20. In Psalm 76.11, it says, Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who around him are, who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. He says, you know what? We, there is a place and a time we make a vow to God. As a matter of fact, we're going to do this later on. If you want to enter into a relationship with God where he loves you and cares for you, you need to pray a prayer where you call on the name of the Lord. You vow your life to him, but you need to mean it. You need to mean it. And in Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23, it says we don't have to vow. But it does say this. It says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for that would be sin to you. The Lord your God will surely require it of you. In other words, if you and I say, God, I promise this, I vow this. And by the way, we do all sorts of vows. People do vows when they're in court. I vow to tell the truth. Uh, People do vows in weddings. I vow to stay married to you no matter what. It says, when you break that vow, God's going to hold you guilty of it. He's going to require that of you. By the way, just even the whole idea that you would choose to have a child, whether you say it or not, you're vowing. By the very, at this, I'm going to give this child an amazing life. I'm going to do everything I can. The people who go in military make a vow. Police make a vow. Firefighters make a vow. And God says, when you make that, I want you to be a person who keeps your vow. He does say in verse 22, however, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin to you. If you say, oh, I'm just not going to make the vow, that'd be better than making it and not paying it. And it says, you shall be careful to perform what goes out of your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Now, these words are serious, and that means that we ought to have very seldom times that we ever make a vow. Matter of fact, almost never. But later on, Paul the apostle would make a Nazarite vow. And you know, it's interesting that James, who actually said don't vow, is the one who told him go make the Nazarite vow because there was a time for him to do that. And and so we need to be careful with it. James 5 verse 12 says, but above all my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but your yes should be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. God says, if you say that something is true and you vow to it, you better, you better keep it. And I don't want you to be somebody who quickly says things and then turns around and tries to take it back. That's why in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 6, it says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they're doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought, bringing up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now listen to this. For dreams come through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. 
For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? He says, if you say to God, I'm going to do it, you better do it. And and I want to tell you, that's why Jesus said, "Then, then just don't make the vows. So you don't get in trouble on this. James says it's better not to vow. Now, again, there's going to be times you need to. But what I want you to grab is you do not become more pleasing to God when all of a sudden we start making all these vows to him. And people seem to be doing it all the time. Uh, a beautiful college girl came to me and she was really upset. And I, I said, what's wrong? And she said, can I talk to you for a second? And we got aside and I said, what happened? And she said, Chuck, um, I made a vow to God that I wouldn't date or be in a relationship for a year. And I said, uh, why'd you do that? She said, well, I just want to get so close to God. I said, no, no, no. God told you not to do it. Why did you do it? Oh, I just, I just felt like that's what I ought to do. And I thought, okay, so what's the problem? Well, now I've met this guy. And he's incredible. And, and, I, and I've got like 11 and a half months to go. <laughs> and I said, do you think there's a chance Satan tempted you to make that vow that God never wanted you to, knowing God was going to bring this guy in your life? I said, you know what? I'm telling you, you probably got to wait out the year. And, oh, she was like, oh, you know, I said, I've got really good news for you. I said, uh, uh, you're living at home. And she said, yeah. I said, numbers chapter 30 says that if you go to your dad, your dad can overturn your vow. Uh, by the way, guys, if you're a guy, only girls get their vows overturned. The guys here, you got to stick with it. You give her the ring. It means something. Ah, uh, but but here's the thing. And she goes, I said, but you know what you need to do? You need to, first of all, confess you sin to God. You need to go to your dad and tell him what you did. And then your dad's got to decide if this guy's worth it. <laughs> you know, Because he can make you single for a year. And by the way, if I were your dad, I would. Uh, but, but the vow's a big deal. And we don't want to be quick. We don't want to be rash. As a matter of fact, uh, in the scriptures, we know of Jephthah. In Judges chapter 11, Jephthah was called by God to lead the children of Israel against the Ammonites and to free them from the bondage of it. And and God told Jephthah, I'm going to give you success. Go do it. And then before an incredible battle that was looming on the horizon, Jephthah goes and vows to God, God, if you give me the victory. And whoa, 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 let's stop and think this through. God already told him he had the victory. What did the vow get him? It got him hurt. It got him pain. It got him bondage. God, if you give me the victory, whatever comes out of my house to greet me when I come home, I will offer as a burnt offering to you. He gets the victory, and as he's walking towards his house, his daughter, his only daughter that he loved with all his heart, comes out dancing before him and cheering and celebrating the victory, and his heart drops. And he looks at her, and he says, Oh, my daughter, you have brought trouble within me. And she said, Why? And he told her of the vow, and then she looked and said, Dad, you got to do it. you got to do it. She goes, give me two months to mourn the fact that I'm never married. Give me two months to go and, and be with my friends and cry. And she goes away for two months and comes back and asks him to do it. And according to Judges 11.37, he fulfilled his vow. Now, what we don't know for sure is what that means. There's a high, high likelihood that that means that he did. He killed her. It would have been wrong to do it. And anybody who knew God's law would have warned him not to. God never, ever, ever would have been happy with him overdoing that. There's a clear teaching in the law not to put your children into the fire. And he would be violating a higher calling at that point. Uh, uh, Leviticus 5, 4 to 13 actually is what he should have done. And hopefully the priest warned him and he did it. 
In Leviticus 5, 4, it says, If a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. He will be guilty of these. In other words, if you make a vow to God, it doesn't let you off. Just go, oh, I'm sorry, and get out. You've got guilt. And then it says what to do in verse 5. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these, that he shall confess that which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for which he has sinned. He has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. Now, here's what God is saying is, I know you blew it. So I want to show a way of grace. I want to show a way for you to be atoned for and now to put this aside and be able to go on with your life. I do not want this to be a burden on you because I love you too much and I want us to be able to relate. But he says, what I need you to do is say you're sorry and really mean it. I need you to be honest about the guilt you have. And then in this case, he said, I want you to make an offering to me. Now, by the way, that particular offering was very expensive. In our day and time, it would probably be $20,000. And it's going to be followed by a later offering called the burnt offering, which would be nearly $100,000. And you might think, well, what happens if someone doesn't have that kind of money? In verse 7, it goes, if you cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord a guilt offering. That which he has sinned, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a sin offering and the other is a burnt offering. And here's why. Because God doesn't want anybody kept from his presence. But he also doesn't want us to walk away and act like it's not a big deal that we've lied. He wants us to take responsibility. He wants us to take ownership. And then he wants us to, he wants us to come to him. Now, uh, Jephthah, that's what he should have done. He, he should have, if he had listened to what God said, he would have realized he sinned. He would have went to the tabernacle and said to the priest there, I sinned. I made a vow to God that there's no way I should have made. My lips were rash. I never should have done it. And I want to confess my sin and I want to make an offering to God. And I also want to give a gift to God. And, and, and I want everyone here to know it. So what do you do? You publicly take responsibility with anybody involved. In his case, he was the leader. That's everybody. And you ask for God's forgiveness and you don't hide from it. And God's desire is that we do that. Jesus said, my desire is that you never even vow. But that doesn't mean you can lie. He says, I want your yes to be yes and your no, no. I want you, when you say yes, it means something. And when you say no, it means something. By the way, it should. Uh, Not too long ago, I was in a particular gathering of people and I was the only Christian there. I got to be honest, I feel like a fish out of water, man. It was pretty obvious, pretty quick. Everybody knew I was a pastor. They knew I was a Christian. And it wasn't long before people decided to bring their complaints up about the church. It probably doesn't surprise you, though, that that here's a gathering of everybody there had a master's degree or higher. And they believed that they ought to be able to trust someone who says they're a Christian. Does that surprise you? A non-Christian just thinks that. And I'll, I'll never forget. They're standing there telling me about a particular incident where this person uh, 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 lied and they broke their word and they broke their commitment. And this, this professor looked at me and said, but they're a Christian. This atheist professor said they're a Christian. Why? He expects someone who says they're a Christian to keep their word. I, I think that that's probably fair. And, and by the way, I would hope that, that you, anybody hears you're from Crossroads. They ought to go, oh, you're from Crossroads. Well, I can trust you. That's what it should be. And that's how God wants us to be. Let your yes be yes and no be no. I uh, actually, about four or five years ago, picked up the newspaper, USA Today, and read the story I'm about to tell you. I think it's interesting that USA Today covered the story. What happened in Wellington, Florida, it, it, it was Little League season. 
And uh, in Wellington, Florida, there was a seven-year-old boy named Tanner. And, and he was playing first base, and the ball was hit to him, and he caught it. And he went to make the tag, and the ump yelled, out! And, and, and Tanner had this weird look on his face, and he walked over to the umpire, and he said, excuse me, um, I missed him. And the ump said, what? He goes, I missed him. I didn't get him. And the ump goes, um, okay, safe. And the coach is looking, what? He goes, well, Tanner said, you know, and, and they go on. Two games later, Tanner's playing shortstop. The ball's hit to him. He goes to get the runner coming by to third. He misses him. All right, I mean, he goes to make the tag. The runner slides into third base. The ump yells, safe. And Tanner stands there looking really funny. And the ump said, what? 